0: Matthew chapter 17 is going to be our passage of scripture this morning, and we're going to begin reading in verses 14, and we're going to read through all the way to the end of the chapter, in verse 27. So let's read God's word together. And for the guests, we're in the midst of a series in the Gospel of Matthew, going through Matthew, the whole book, and joining Jesus in that book. And the title of that series is, is Follow Me. It's Matthew seventeen 14. Let's read God's Word together. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them, for me and for yourself. The title of the message this morning is Faith Like a Grain of Mustard Seed. Let's pray together. Oh God, how can we thank you enough for your authoritative, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, reliable Word. Lord, we are so grateful for the sufficiency of Your Word, the authority of Your Word. We thank You so much that through Your Word, we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as a congregation as we look at Matthew 17 here and we see Jesus more clearly. Holy Spirit, we pray, would you please move upon our hearts and cause us to see Jesus more fully and to worship Him with greater passion and adoration than ever before. I pray that you would cause us to have genuine faith In Jesus Christ, your Son, Father. That we would believe in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and be saved. And we would believe in his resurrection from the dead and be saved. Lord, I I ask that you would grant faith unto those who have not believed in you in this room. That they might be saved this morning. And I pray for those who already are saved and who have repented of their sins and trusted in you, Jesus. I pray that you would strengthen their faith. Deepen their faith. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. The the context of this passage here is right after the passage from last week in the the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before them on the mountain and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw Jesus in his heavenly glory. It's, it's, It's marvelous to look at. And then they come down the mountain and they really come down from that mountain high experience and they immediately experience the effects of the fall as they come down the mountain there in verse 14. And we see that here right beginning in verse 14. We're going to look at three points this morning. The first is genuine faith. Genuine faith. Secondly, amazing love. Amazing love. And thirdly, miraculous provision. Miraculous provision. And the big idea from the sermon this morning is going to be that the beloved son of the king sacrificed himself for you and me. The beloved son of the king sacrificed himself for you and me. Let's look at genuine faith in this first section here in this scripture. Verse 14, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. These, this story here is in all, uh, three gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's lined up exactly as, as this passage is right after the transfiguration. Jesus encounters this man and he encounters this, this boy who it says from childhood has suffered from epileptic seizures. And in this passage here, we, we know that in this particular situation that there is a demon involved with this young boy's suffering. The father is so distressed over his son's suffering through the years that he comes to the disciples, and most likely this is all of the disciples except for Peter, James, and John who were up on the mountain. So while they're up on the mountain, most likely this man is talking to the other disciples, and the other disciples are are seeking to... Uh, bring healing to this boy, but they could not drive out the demon. They could not drive away this condition. And so the father in great distress is so disturbed over his son's situation and the, the, the peril of it. He literally comes up and he falls on his knees before Jesus, having just come down from the mountain. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Have mercy This word for mercy here is speaking here of please demonstrate sympathy and compassion toward me and toward my son. Have mercy, take sympathy and have compassion on me and my son for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. Any father wants to see his son's suffering or his child's suffering be alleviated and be healed. And the conditions further described... For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. In Luke's account of this passage, the the demon would come upon him and he would convulse violently. And it was really a life-threatening predicament because the demon would drive him into the fire, drive him into the water to try to drown him. And someone had to be a caregiver for this child all the time. This was most, most likely a very exhausted man kneeling before the Lord. He's a very desperate man, desperate for a solution. For his son and his kneeling just shows the desperation he's experiencing as a father. He appeals to Jesus and says, I brought him to your disciples. They could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. It's sort of a perplexing thing at first to think, why would Jesus speak that way? In relation to the disciples not being able to drive out this demon and bring healing to this boy, it seems that most likely these other disciples started to kind of grav- gravitate more and more from a normal walk of faith and a very close walk of faith with Jesus and walking closely and keeping in step with the spirit began to almost rely upon their abilities that Jesus had previously given to him to drive out demons and heal the sick, almost to start to rely upon it like magic. And they were just walking in sort of a self-sufficiency that really just wasn't dependent upon prayer, wasn't dependent upon prayer and fasting and wasn't really desperate and dependent upon God in a way that would drive out This demon. And so when they encountered this great obstacle of this boy who was oppressed and possessed by a demon and in having epileptic seizures seeking to kill him, we see here really the design of Satan for all of us. If Satan could have his way, he would, this is an example of him seeking to destroy and devour God's creation. He hates us. He hates our faith. He is The one behind tempting man into sin and through that the fall comes and through the fall comes sickness and disease and demon possession and Jesus comes and brings and redeems the world out from the fall. And we'll fully experience that when Jesus returns with great power and might and we experience the redemption of all things. But here, as Jesus is bringing in the kingdom under the new covenant, we see Jesus come in great power and he gives power to the disciples. But he calls for his people to walk in close faith with him, with a dependent prayer spirit about them, this You might notice here in verses 20 and 21 and 22, if you look down in your Bibles there, if you have an ESV, which I'm reading out of the ESV version, you'll see that it goes from verse 20 to 22. And there's a reference in 21 that isn't in the uh, most reliable manuscripts, Greek manuscripts originally. Verse 21, which was included in some versions, but in this version here has been excluded is that this kind can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. Now, it's important to note that in the other gospel account, in Mark, that this kind can only be driven out by prayer is in the original manuscripts. And they think that this might have been added later in the Matthews, but the most original, most reliable manuscripts do not have Matthew 17, 21 in them. And so that's noted here by it being removed from this version. But we know that Jesus did, in fact, say, This kind can only be driven out by prayer. It seems that the word fasting wasn't a part of the original manuscripts in this case, though fasting is a wonderful spiritual discipline and one that's commended many other times in scripture. So that'll help you understand. If you ever see something like that in your Bible where there's a verse missing and often if you look down in the comments, you'll see that a a wonderful apt description of of why it was uh, taken, why it was taken out. It was most likely not a part of the original, most reliable Greek manuscripts and and uh, and it was faithfully done. But here we see that what takes place is that when Jesus says, this kind can only come out through prayer, it's sort of a dependent prayer, a persistent prayer, a, a prayer of faith. It's not just kind of a self-sufficient walking and just, okay, come on out of him. And and, and the disciples were meeting greater opposition in this case than maybe they had previously And they were perplexed why they couldn't drive the demon out. And Jesus answered them. At first, he just expresses a sort of a sighing expression in verse 17. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And then Jesus, we see here, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We see his absolute power over demons. And deep diseases. He comes. And once again we see. His power immediately driving out the forces of darkness. i was so thankful for that theme in worship today. He rebukes the demon and it comes out of him. The boy was healed instantly. There you go. There's Jesus. One look at him. One glance of faith to him. And you are. Forgiven of all your sins when you trust in Him and His finished work on the cross. And when Jesus touches you and drives out sickness, disease, and the effects of satanic attack, it's gone, and it's gone instantly. And the disciples come to Jesus because they had been trying so hard, and they said to Him, why could we not cast it out? And He gives them an answer. He said to them, because of your little Faith. Now, most likely here, this word little faith isn't talking about little in terms of quantity. It's more talking about the poverty of their faith. Because here he commends, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, he's actually saying, even if you had just a little bit of real, genuine, true faith, you will say that this mountain moved from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So he's actually saying that it only takes a little bit of genuine, true faith to see mountains moved. He's talking here about their poverty of faith. Not necessarily the quantity of their faith. It's They've got impoverished faith. They are not believing. They are doubting. And they are operating really out of a self-sufficiency that wasn't able to drive out this demon like jesus was in an instant and so he's talking here about the need for genuine faith brothers and sisters before we talk a little bit more about genuine faith i just want to remind you of just the wonderful power of jesus christ over the forces of satan i was just just Remarking here in my mind just about how awesome it is that just with a word, he just drives out this demon instantly. And I'm reminded that we too have been under the power of darkness and the fall and under Satan's power and dominion before we came to know Christ. But those of us in this room who, by the grace of God, have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, We have been delivered out of the domain of darkness. Aren't you so grateful for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ? I've got a great verse for you. Romans 16, verse 20. Romans 16, verse 20. Oh, get to know this one, brothers and sisters. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Oh, what a great verse in Scripture. And how wonderfully it ties into our Advent theme on peace this morning, that the God of peace, who has dealt Satan a mortal wound through his shed blood on the cross and has bound Satan and is plundering his house as we looked at a couple weeks ago when he says and promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've got a gate-smashing Savior who smashes down the gates of hell, mortally wounds Satan through his death and resurrection for our sins, binds up Satan and then plunders his house and takes out from Satan's house and from the dominion of darkness people from every tribe and tongue and nation On the earth. What a glorious description. And as Satan is literally writhing on the ground, still trying to do his worst against God's people, and still as a wounded beast, bringing much affliction and much darkness with him, we know that even though he'll be set loose toward the very end, we know this promise. You know what his ultimate end is? The God of peace, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So take heart, beloved church, and take heart even as you look at Matthew 17 here with this helpless father and this helpless son and this helpless perverse generation and in the midst of this Helpless group of disciples unable to drive him out. Jesus comes and game over. This is the power of Almighty God coming down and driving out what no one else could drive out. And we see His power over sin and Satan and darkness here in this passage. And Jesus is saying here to the disciples, even if you have a little genuine faith, persistent faith, faith that in the other Gospel account is in accordance with Prayer, walking closely, independent prayer, keeping in step with the Spirit of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in faith, having a little bit of genuine faith, you can move mountains. This proverbial expression is talking about overcoming great difficulties. And we see believers overcoming great difficulties. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you see mountains being moved by the men and women of God throughout the Old Testament into the New, through acts of faith, they were able to do wonderful and glorious things. And here Jesus is saying to His disciples, it's because of your little faith. Believe in Me. There's a contrast here from the glories of His transfiguration coming down and there's Moses and Elijah coming to to stand by Him and support and He's transfigured in glorious, radiant heavenly glory in the last context. That glory of His... Deity is contrasted here with the faithlessness of the disciples. And Jesus is saying, oh, how long am I needing to bear with this doubt? How long am I needing to bear with this twisted, or the word perverse is used here, this perverse generation, steeped in unbelief, steeped in doubt, how slow to see who I really am, the Christ! It must have been so tempting to Jesus, after all of his many, many displays of glory and the miracles, to still see such faithlessness in him. And we see here that that word twisted generation is linked with the word faithless. And we see that when someone is faithless, there is a Moral perversity to unbelief. It's not just an intellectual thing. Oh, I just don't believe. I'm a skeptic. It's always tied to a moral perversion that we doubt that God exists. In fact, Proverbs says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. That in order to say there is no God, there's a moral perversion to that. You're a fool to say that. Look around you. And see the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, the stars and the planets and everything pour forth speech. Believe in him. Believe in him. Look to him and be saved all the ends of the earth. And for the person who would say, ah, I just doubt and I don't believe I'm an atheist. Well, in our culture, that gets elevated and lifted up to be like you're an intellectual one. You're somebody who's actually smarter than the rest of mankind. No, brothers and sisters, scripturally, we see here that unbelief is tied to moral perversion. Unbelief is tied to being twisted and speaking under the captivity of the devil unbelief is never commendable and anytime you see doubt and unbelief it's something that jesus looks and marvels at and, and and he has to bear with it when we doubt him he's tempted here though he never sins he's tempted here and how much longer is he needing to bear All the way to the cross, His disciples all flee Him. Judas betrays Him. Peter denies Him three times after all that he's done. Denies that he even knows Jesus. That's us. But here's the good news. It didn't stop Him from going to the cross for Him. And dying for His sins. And our doubts and our unbelief did not stop. Oh, happy thought. Jesus, from delivering us from our helpless condition. Oh, he was not helpless. He comes down and boom. Demon healed. Demon driven away. Boy healed. Boy restored to his father. What's so interesting here, you got this theme of father and sons. you got father saying, oh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased on the mountain. Here you've got a helpless father crying out, please heal my son. And Jesus, have mercy, compassion, boom, immediately. The the boy is healed instantly because he was suffering terribly and Jesus took compassion on him. What's amazing is the Father above has so much more infinite compassion. And yet when it came out for His own precious spotless Son to be suffering in agony on the cross, the Father in His great love for you and me Did not choose to alleviate his own son's suffering in order that we, by Jesus' wounds, might be healed. Glorious gospel, glorious Savior, glorious Father. How could the father have borne seeing Jesus in such agony in Gethsemane and then all the way through to the cross watching his his own beloved son who was the innocent spotless one being mocked and spit upon and ridiculed? To watch his son go alone up the hill to Calvary as as the disciples all flee from him. All man strength and support are are fleeing from the disciples. Are asleep in Gethsemane. He's got to send the angels to come and strengthen the son of God before he goes up that hill. Because the next day he's going to be our sin bearer. Bearing all of our guilt. Bearing the mountain load of sin that is ours on the cross. Crying out, my God, my God. Father, why have you forsaken me? Oh, our Heavenly Father was not helpless. And Jesus was not helpless. He could have called in at once. Legions of angels could have come and ended the whole thing with the cross. He could have vindicated Himself. Everybody who spit upon Him instantly would have been vaporized and destroyed and sent into the hell that they deserve. But instead, mercy, compassion, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is what He has brought to you. That is what He has brought to me. Brothers and sisters, oh, beloved Savior, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Forgive us for our doubting. Forgive us for our unbelief. Pour out, Holy Spirit, genuine faith on us this morning, your church, that we might rise up and see mountains moved for your glory. Even if we've got just a little pittance of faith, the size of a mustard seed, if it's genuine faith, Jesus says, it'll move mountains. Thank God that though he was tempted and though he was much provoked by their unbelief and by our unbelief, it didn't stop Jesus from going to the cross. It didn't stop this son from enduring the full measure of suffering and it didn't stop the father's love from putting His Son into in the midst of enduring this kind of suffering. Nobody came to the Father and said, I'm going to show mercy on you, Father, and take the suffering away from you watching your Son suffer on the cross. No. And even if there was one who could have alleviated it, the Father would not have stopped Jesus from suffering the full measure of His wrath for your sins, because had He stopped it, Every one of us in this room would have gone to hell for eternity had Jesus not died on the cross and had Jesus not rose from the dead. And so you see Jesus in the grave for three days and you see Jesus having been treated in such a fashion, suffering, bleeding and dying, a shameful death on the cross, bearing our curse. And the father on the third day vindicates his son raises Him up. And along with that comes the promise that any of us in this room who believe in the death on the cross of Jesus Christ for our sins and in His subsequent resurrection from the grave, if you believe, oh, brothers and sisters, God the Father will justify you. He will declare you righteous. He will give you the robes of Christ's righteousness that he earned with his sinless life. He will wash away all of your sins right now, no matter how dark and how oppressed you are by the forces of hell. No matter how much you are down and discouraged right now, being beat down by Satan himself and discouraged and in despair and thinking there's no way God could ever forgive me of my sins. Oh, no, friend. All of your sins can be forgiven, just like mine have been. Trust in him. Don't stand at a distance any longer. Trust in him with genuine faith. I was going to save this for the end, but I'm not going to save it for the end. I have a question for you. Have you ever moved mountains with your faith? Think about it. Have you? My guess is that most of you believers in this room who just processed that question in your mind would probably say, oh no, I wish I could. Do you realize that when God opened up your eyes to believe in Jesus, and you believed in him genuinely for the very first time, your faith might have just been like a little tiny fleck, a little mustard seed, You might be troubled so much now and still say, man, I doubt so much and I doubt so often, but I do genuinely believe. But like this man in the other gospel accounts, this man cries out and says, Jesus, I I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's, That's the heart of you, my brothers and sisters. That's my heart. I do believe you, Jesus. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you realize that God looks down upon your little faith? So plagued and troubled by doubts alongside of it. So plagued by unbelief assaulting it. So plagued by Satan and all of his wicked assaults trying to get you to doubt all the more. He sees that little mustard seed of faith in his son and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And he sees that genuine faith. And guess what he did? The mountain of your sin on your shoulders that would have plunged you down into an eternity in hell forever, and justifiably so, has been moved off of you. It was placed on Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son endured the wrath of God in your place and in mine. And brothers and sisters, the mountain load of your guilt, the mountain load of your sin, the mountain load of the wrath of God that was upon you has been moved. It has been moved by God himself through the instrument of your faith. And so I ask you again, Have you ever moved mountains with your faith? For every true Christian in this room, I want to say to you this Yes, you have. Yes, you happily have. Genuine faith is not faith in our faith, it's not faith in ourselves. Genuine faith that Jesus is talking about here is not, and please listen carefully to this, this is an important one. Faith is not faith in a desired outcome for your life. A desired circumstance. Believe this and you'll get it. You'll get the circumstance. Circumstance. Faith is not faith in our faith. Faith is not faith in ourselves. Genuine faith is not faith in a desired outcome. Genuine faith is faith in the one true God. And Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And when you by the grace of God, have genuinely, genuinely believed and trusted in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, my friend, the mountain's been moved. You are no longer going to hell. You are going to heaven forever. God has done that. He's done that through your faith. All the glory goes to God. None of the glory goes goes to us because as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, you know the verse, for it's by grace that you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Friends, we happily say, Jesus, we do not desire to boast We don't desire at all to boast except in the cross. We don't desire to boast but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He who is mighty has done a great thing. He has driven off the darkness. He's driven off the sting of death. He's driven off Satan off your back. He's driven off if you've believed all the mountain load of your sin and mine. He's taken it and he has cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west this happily happy advent. You are forgiven i am forgiven the mountain has been moved by our tiny faith that is genuine like a grain of mustard seed oh i'm glad i didn't wait for the end for that thank you holy spirit oh awesome god awesome god Oh, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I'm so moved by that point. I want to quickly just move through amazing love and miraculous provision. The next section. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man. This is the title that Jesus uses to talk about his work as the Messiah. That's, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself that he uses the most. The Son of Man. It's a, it's a phrase that's connected with Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel prophesies about the suffering servant of God, the Messiah Himself. And Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah. And this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. This is what's going to happen to God's servant. Is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This accents the sovereignty of God In the crucifixion of His Son, Isaiah 53 says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Jesus Christ was delivered into the hands of men. We see there also a description that man is responsible for the wicked and evil act of Jesus being crucified. The hands of men are the ones who are responsible for the evil of the cross but all of that evil was done underneath of the sovereignty of God. And it's an amazing thing, an amazing passage to contemplate. But many of you know this passage already. I, I quote this quite a bit in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Some of you might remember this. But Acts chapter 2 verse 23, you've got one verse of scripture that simultaneously has the best description of the sovereignty of God Combined with the best verse of scripture on human responsibility of man. In one verse. Listen to this. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, Peter said on the day of Pentecost in his sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Men, you were responsible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we were responsible. It was our sin that held him there on the cross until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought us life. And now we know it is finished, as the great hymn says. But we must own our personal responsibility for the cross. John Stott once said, before we see the cross as something done for us, we must see the cross as something done by us. I did this. I was the one responsible for the Son of God hanging up there. And rightly, like the disciples here, they were greatly distressed. Another translation here, they they were greatly saddened when they thought Jesus prophesying for the second time here in this Gospel that He's going to suffer and die. The disciples rightly were disturbed, rightly distressed. Brothers and sisters, it's a very heavy and not a light thing that the Son of Man, God's Servant, suffered for our sins and may we never take it lightly may we own our personal responsibility for the cross may we weep and lament over our sins being responsible for the son of god being crushed but let us also take heart that it was the will of the lord to crush him god the father with great love for you believer gave up and delivered up His Son to be your substitute, to be a sacrifice for your sins. As we looked at in the beginning, the beloved Son of the King of whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It is this beloved Son with whom the Father was well pleased that the Father delivered up because so great is His love for you. And Jesus obeyed the Father's will. He sacrificed Himself willingly for you and for me. He was not helpless. He was the mighty one who could have ended all the suffering and did not need to go to the cross. But when it came down to, am I going to deliver myself And bring down the legions of angels and save myself from this horror that I've got to endure on the cross? Think about what you would have done. I would have gotten myself out of there. Jesus says no. I am going to be led like a a lamb to the slaughter. Let them spit upon me. Let them mock me. Let them ridicule me. Let let them just absolutely drive me down into the dust. Let them cast lots for my clothing. Let them give me the full load of shame and suffering. I will not, even when they bring the vinegar up to my mouth to help alleviate my suffering, I won't drink it because I'm going to take the full load. I'm going to take the full load so they never have to in hell. I'm going to take their suffering. I'm going to bear their griefs and carry their sorrows. And the chastisement that should have been upon them is going to fall upon me. I'm going to take it. Oh, glorious gospel, glorious Jesus. Thank you so much for your great love that though you did not need to give up your own life, you willingly chose to sacrifice yourself. So great is your love for your bride, your people, your church, that you would have loved us and given yourself for us. Brothers and sisters, it's enough to make you weep. If we are unmoved by this glorious gospel, something's wrong in my heart. Let us not ever become over-familiar with this story. Let us not ever be unaffected, Holy Spirit. Help us to grow in our passion, to grow in our amazement, to grow in our wonder and all at your amazing love that would have hung up there until the last full measure of wrath was completely satisfied and absorbed by you so that there's not one drop, drop of wrath left over from me. Oh, thank You for that total and complete salvation. Thank You for saying it is finished so that we all here who believe know that there's nothing else for us to do except believe and then receive that free gift of God called our salvation. He who is mighty has done a great thing. He's worthy of our praise. And guess what? He's not in the grave anymore. I love the way Jesus just slips this in here. Yeah, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. They're speaking to me. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill the Christ. That's how evil mankind is. That's how wicked we are. This is the most wicked and evil act. It's also the greatest form of suffering that any human being has ever experienced and will ever experience. Jesus did that for you. And he just says, oh, and by the way, uh, don't forget this. Uh, he will be raised on the third day. The language here is again on the sovereignty of God. There's other descriptions in where Jesus raises himself. And what we see here is that the father who gives up and delivers his son underneath his sovereignty and crushes his son, it's the will of the Lord. For him to suffer, it's the will of the Lord to crush his own son. But guess what also the will of the Lord is? He's going to raise his son up from death and his son is going to rise from the grave. His son is going to ascend and sit at his right hand and his son's going to return and bring home gloriously his church, his embattled church, his church that is so besieged by the effects of the fall, though even Satan does his worst. Nothing's going to stop Jesus from taking home his bride. Brothers and sisters, this is glorious gospel, glorious good news All because Christ died and rose again. Here in these verses in 22 and 23, we get the heart of the gospel. We get the very heart of our faith. Oh, friends, in this happy Advent season, remember the glory and the peace that is yours because God has delivered him up for you. Third point, miraculous provision. This section here is not a passage of scripture that is a description of how to go fishing. (laughs) Though I love that part of the story. Yeah, uh, Peter, go down to the sea and uh, just cast your hook into the sea. And the first fish you're going to pull up, it's got our taxes. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> Anybody else like that? This temple tax was a Jewish tax. It was also allowed by the Roman Empire. It wasn't a Roman tax. It was the Jews collecting this tax for... Temple worship and temple maintenance. Every Jewish male between the ages of 20 and 50 had to pay it. Usually when it was paid, this four drachma coin was uh, paid uh, to pay for the tax of two men at one time. So usually two men would come and bring one coin. Exactly what happens here with Jesus and Peter. And they come and they ask Peter, does Jesus pay taxes? Answer, Peter, yes brothers and sisters, there is an implication there about us being good citizens to pay our taxes. Jesus did that, but that's not exactly what this passage is about either, though there's much to take from that. Uh, if this is about Jesus being the Christ. This is about, this is a Christological passage. This is Jesus showing the glory of his deity and his omniscience. You think about this. He says to Peter, uh, Peter, listen, all right, got to pay the tax. Uh, first thing I want to ask you, Peter, is, um, From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? When he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Meaning, I'm the son of the king. And I shouldn't have to pay this tax. In fact, in John chapter 2, what we learn about Jesus when... The temples talked about he says destroy this temple and i'll raise it again in three days speaking of his death and resurrection In a sense john 2 is about jesus saying hey by the way The place where you come and meet god is right here Not the temple the temple symbolizes the tabernacle in the old testament temple old testament and now guess what it all points to You're looking at him This is where you come and meet god here with me Trust in me believe in me destroy this temple i'll raise it again in three days He is the temple and yet he's needing to pay the temple tax. There's such humility, there's such desire not to give needless offense, that he actually pays it. The priests at this time were exempt from the tax. Here we got the great high priest paying the tax. We've got the son of the king. We've got him paying the tax, though earthly kings see to it that their sons do not need to pay it. Jesus, and this is an expression of his humility. I'm going to soon go to the cross and bear all their sins. I don't want to needlessly give an offense. Look at how meek he is. He's not this mean-spirited fighter of, I want my rights. He is willing to just let go of this obligation that he was free from. He says, I'm going to pay it, Peter. Peter. This is going to be an example, Peter, to you of the type of humility God's people are meant to have before government. And this is the way we should be. But he also is symbolizing here the same humility that's going to lead him up the hill of Calvary to die on the cross for our sins and suffer in our stead. But I marvel at the omniscience. I want you to think about this. He says, go down, throw a hook into the sea and the first fish you pull up. So when he's saying these words to Peter, there's some fish down by the sea that's swimming around. <laughs> Jesus knows he's sovereign over the fish. You see it elsewhere in John 21. He's like, ah, oh, I know you haven't caught anything all night. Listen, why don't you drop the net on the other side? <laughs> they drop the net on the other side. The whole thing gets filled up with fish. It's like sovereignty over schools of fish. Put them all right in the net, Jesus. Well done. Sovereignty, power, I mean, you can't help but just delight in the omniscience of God coming out here in the person of the second person of the Trinity. You know, he 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 veils his glory, he veils his deity, but it comes out in the transfiguration and it comes out here with an expression of knowing, oh yeah, I know the exact fish, drop the hook in, guess what? There's already a coin in his mouth. Pull him up, open up the mouth, Peter, and uh, there's our taxes. That is just awesome. <laughs> But you know what it's for? It's for you to remember and for me to remember. This same miraculous provision from this miraculous God, this miracle-working God, is the same God who provides for all of your needs every day. Week in and week out, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or His children begging for bread. Hasn't He been so faithful to you? How many times has your back been up against the wall financially You thought there was no way you were ever going to get out He's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He will never let you fall. He will always provide for you. He will always make sure you are taken care of. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. But you know what the greatest provision was? It wasn't a coin for Peter's taxes. It was payment for Peter's sins. The passage where Yahweh is given the title Jehovah Jireh in the Old Testament, do you know what it is? It's when Abraham takes his son up on the hill. And Isaac's like, hey dad, look, where's the sacrifice at? And Abraham says what to him? Son, the Lord will provide. <laughs> and that father took it to the brink in obedience to God's command at his son on the altar, Isaac. And right when he goes to strike to bring down the death blow upon his son, the angel comes and stops Abraham from striking down in obedience his son, Isaac. And a ram is provided in the thicket. And Isaac and Abraham get the ram that the Lord has provided. And they come and they sacrifice the lamb. The ram. That ram symbolizes Jesus Christ. This father here got down on his knees and begged. Jesus to deliver his son from suffering and God did it. Abraham begged God to provide a substitute for Isaac and it was provided. But who was there to alleviate your suffering, Father? Who was there to get you out of the agony of watching your son Jesus suffer when he suffered on the cross in my place and in my brothers and sisters place? No one! Jehovah Jireh, our provider, had no one to provide for him when Christ was hanging up there on the cross. He had to turn because Jesus was so ugly in that moment with my sin and yours on top of him. That as R.C. Sproul said, Jesus was the most grotesque creature that God the Father had ever seen in that moment. Bearing my sin and your shame and your guilt and the mountain load of sin that you and I had upon Jesus as our sin bearer, as our substitute. He had to forsake His own Son. Hear His own Son cry out in agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't think that was hard? Not just for Jesus, but for the Father? Father? So great is the Father's love for you, beloved. So great. Don't forget Romans 5, 8, our church verse. God has proven his love for you. If you're ever in doubt about God's love, brothers, don't doubt God's love. Sister, don't doubt God's personal love for you. He gave up his own son. He endured watching his son suffer the most horrific suffering. When your child is suffering, don't you want to alleviate it as fast as possible? Your love for your child does not compare to the love of God the Father for His Son. And yet, so great was His love for you. Marvel at this, that He put His Son up on the cross. He fully punished your sins in the body of His Son so that His Son was suffering the wrath of God in your place so that you don't have to go to hell, but you're going to go to the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells and enjoy God forever and enjoy salvation forever. Oh, friends, no one was there to provide... For the Heavenly Father. An alternative. And no one was there to get Jesus. Out of his cross work. And we will adore. Throughout all of eternity. This great miraculous provider. God. Who has provided for us. A blood sacrifice. To atone for our sins. And to save us. From the wrath of God that we deserve. So that right now we can worship Him and praise Him and sing. He who is mighty has done a great thing. Let there be passion. Let there be devotion. Let there be worship. Let there be reverence and awe. Let there be marveling at the majesty of this King who would put His Son forward. And have Him die. In our place to save us. He's worthy of our worship, isn't He? Genuine faith, amazing love, miraculous provision from this awesome God, the beloved Son of the King, sacrificed Himself for you and me. The only appropriate way to close is for us to worship. And so I'd like to ask Tom and the worship team to come back. Let us sing, He who is mighty has done a great thing. And let us thank God, believer, that He has done this for you. Aren't you so happy? Aren't you so thankful that He accepts our little faith? Because it's genuine faith. And that through that faith, we have been healed. We have been forgiven. We have been cleansed. We have been saved. Almighty God, we worship you now in closing. We just want to tell you how much you mean to us. Thank you so much for loving us like this. What is man? What is man that you're even mindful of him? Let alone, Father, that you would give up your own precious son to die for us like this. That you would have sent Jesus down into the manger to come and deliver us out of the darkness. We praise you alongside of Mary, we praise you. He who is mighty has done a great thing. We praise you for your mightiness, almighty God. We praise you for your power. We praise you, Lord God. Nobody else could have ever delivered us from our sins. Nobody could have ever delivered us out from Satan's grip and power, but you did. And we believe in you with all of our heart. And Lord, I pray, drive the doubts away. Drive the dark away. Drive the unbelief away. Drive it far away. Drive away twistedness and perversion that would cause us to doubt you. Drive away the accusations of the evil one. Drive away the destroyer from our presence. And Lord God, minister, Holy Spirit, your peace unto your people, even as we close in worship, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship our awesome God. He's awesome indeed, brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.